Scripture reading for this morning's sermon is found in Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Lord, we could just pack it up and go home. Right now, there's been so much wonderful truth sung to us and by us. But you have one more word to say to us from these two verses that we're going to talk about here. And my heart's cry is that you would say it with heart-opening power, like you did to Lazarus. Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man obeyed. Lord, speak like that this morning, I pray, to all of us. For while some are spiritually dead, others are dead-like and sleeping in their Christian walk. Waken us. Show us yourself. Make yourself loved like we've never loved you before. And obeyed. And glorified. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Our focus is on just two verses now this morning, verses 9 and 10 in Romans 5. Next week, verse 11. There are four great realities in these two verses. Three of them you could call Christmas presents from God to you, and one of them is the description of the reason why you need the Christmas presents. The main point of the passage, I'll tell you in advance, is in the words, much more, repeated twice in verse 9 and 10. And the point is that God wants you to leave this room much more confident in His grace and love and His purpose to save you than when you came in. We'll get to that. That's point number four. Let's start with point number one. Here it is. Four realities, four observations, four points. Number one, we were all enemies of God and needed to be reconciled to Him. That's point one. We were all enemies of God and needed to be reconciled. You see that at the beginning of verse 10? For if... While we were enemies, so there's the statement, we were enemies. Now that's a problem. To be an enemy of God is a big problem that has to be solved. Because if you stay an enemy of God, then you are doomed and you will be ruined forever. But now, there's a issue here. Because many have taken this text to mean that the enmity is entirely ours and not shared by God. We're his enemy. He's not our enemy. 
We have enmity toward him. He has no enmity toward us. He has love toward us. We're opposed to him in our rebellion. He's not opposed to us. He's for us. There's a name for that. It's called liberalism. But it looks like it's in the text. So let's see. The argument for it looks quite strong on the face of it. Two arguments from verse 10. It says, you see it right there, we were enemies. It doesn't say God was enemy. It says we were enemies. And it says we were reconciled to God. It doesn't say God was reconciled to us. So in ordinary English, as we use it today, case closed. Goodness gracious. This is our problem, not God's problem. There's a problem with that. Two problems, two big ones. Here's the first one. In the way the New Testament talks about being reconciled to God, it's very different from the way we talk about being reconciled to God. And the easiest way to see it is another place where this language of reconciliation is used and specifically being reconciled to someone is described and it's Matthew 5:23 and 24. I invite you to go there with me if you want to see why I don't take the term we were reconciled to God to mean we've got to get over our grievance with him. But the reverse. Here's what Matthew 5, 23 to 24 says. If you are presenting your offering at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Now stop and make sure you get that clear in your head. Here you are at the altar and you remember <clears throat> your brother has something against you. Now what's the situation here? The situation is you've wronged your brother. And he's mad about it. He's got a grievance. All right? We clear on that? Verse 24. Leaving, leave your offering, therefore, or there, leave your offering there before the altar and go first, be reconciled to your brother, and then come present your offering. Be reconciled to your brother. And what's the situation being described? You've done the wrong and he's grieved against you. He's angry. He's got the grievance. So be reconciled to him. Now let's go back with that to chapter 5 verse 10 of Romans. It says in verse 10, For if while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God. Now, if being reconciled to your brother is something that has to happen when he's got the grievance and he's angry and he's got enmity against you because of something you've done wrong, then what should it mean when it says in Romans 5.10, we were reconciled to God. If they were the same, which I take them to be, then it means we've done the wrong, God is angry, God's got the enmity toward us, and we need to be reconciled to him in that that enmity is overcome. 
Here's the second problem with that other interpretation. And it's more immediate. You don't have to go anywhere to see it. And it's really quite strong. You see in verse 9 at the end, it says, We were... We shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. Wrath. The problem is wrath. If somebody has wrath against you, you don't call them your friend. This is wrath. This is not chastisement. This is not a nice spanking of somebody you love. This is wrath. Anger. Judgment. That's our problem. It's the biggest problem in the universe. If a holy, infinite God is angry at us, it'll never go well with us for all eternity if that problem isn't solved. And so, I would say it's not either or. Either we're enemies or he's an enemy. We are enemies. In rebellion, he is an enemy in wrath, and we are at enmity with each other. And that's our condition. We're at enmity with each other. And it's our fault. Our sin is hated by God, and we will be punished for it someday if a solution isn't found. So point number one is we were all enemies, he toward us, we toward him. And we needed to be reconciled. Observation number two. God the Father himself has worked decisively in the past and certainly will work in the future to overcome his wrath against us. God the Father himself has acted in the past in Christ and will most certainly act in the future so that we escape this wrath. Now, don't miss this remarkable part of the good news. The Bible makes it very plain that wrath is upon the world and will be poured out in full measure someday in such dreadful ways that we cannot even in our wildest imagination think of how terrible it's going to be. Revelation chapter 20, verse 15 says this. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. What's that? What's that like? Chapter 14, verse 10 of Revelation describes what it will be like in the lake of fire. They will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. This is fire or like fire. (laughs) I've heard some people say, fire is just a metaphor. I say, just a metaphor. Just a metaphor. What are metaphors for? What are metaphors for? Metaphors are because you can't describe the reality. 
Metaphors don't overstate, they understate. Just a metaphor. It says fire, not because it's less than fire, but because we're groping for language to describe the horror of it. Okay, it's a metaphor, but if it's a metaphor, it's worse than fire. And it's torment, and it's forever. No getting out. This is not purgatory, which doesn't exist. Forever and ever. It's the strongest word for eternity in the Greek language. It's a phrase, phrase upon phrase, forever and ever and ever. This is terrifying. Terrifying, terrifying. And the question is, who will rescue us? Who are you counting on to rescue you from the wrath of God? Because your conscience tells you you have not lived up to his law and you are under judgment. You don't need the Bible to tell you that, though it does. Who are you counting on to rescue you from the wrath of God? Now, the answer of the New Testament is that there is one person who can rescue us from the wrath of God and only one. God. Only God can rescue us from the wrath of God. Let me show you why I say that. There are five Main verbs in verse 9 and 10. And they're all passive. Let's count them. Having now been justified, one. Shall we be saved, two. If while we were enemies we were reconciled, three. To God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, four. Shall we be saved, five. Five Passive verbs where we are being acted upon. We are being justified. We are being reconciled. We are being saved. So who's doing it? The Father or the Son? Answer, the Father. Why do I say that? God the Father is justifying reconciling, and will save from his wrath. Why do I say that? Look at verse 10. It says, We were reconciled to God through the death of his Son. Now, you you wouldn't say that if the Son were the actor here of the reconciling. You don't say, The Son reconciled us to God through the Son. You can't say that. That doesn't make sense. The Son reconciled us to God through His Son. You say, God the Father reconciled us to God through His Son. And so I say, who is the Savior from wrath? God the Father saves us from His wrath. Oh, this is important. It shouldn't surprise us. Look at verse 8. We're not on verse 8 this week, but we've been on it. Verse 8, 
God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you. And God is so angry with you that his love will rise to the heights of rescuing you from his anger. Now let me, let me make something really clear here because this is so important. Don't make the mistake of defending the love of God by denying the wrath of God. Because what you do when you try to defend the love of God by denying the wrath of God is destroy the love of God. Why? Because in the Bible, the highest point of the love of God is his rescue from the wrath of God. If there's no wrath, the whole fabric of the Bible unravels. The greatest love that God ever showed you was rescuing you from wrath. That's the point of verses 6 to 8, is it not? Oh, there's so many people. There's so many people who try to rescue God as a God of love by denying the fabric of the Bible, by denying the wrath of God. You destroy it, at least the way the Bible conceives of it. The highest point of love toward you was the cross. And the only reason there had to be a cross is because of the just wrath of God. Were there no just wrath about to be poured out upon the world, he would not have bruised his son. And that was love. Oh, that was love. So please, please, let's not join the crowd of liberalism. I'm defining liberalism for you. If you wonder, what's liberalism? I'm defining it. Liberalism removes the just wrath of God and the substitutionary atonement that describes the love of God as the rescue from that wrath and has a benevolent father and a son who sets an example of how much the father loves in suffering. That is a destruction of biblical religion entirely. Now that's half of point two. The other half is simply to make this observation. God's work to rescue us from his wrath has happened in the past Definitely, and will happen in the future, certainly. You see that structure in verses 9 and 10? Having now been justified, that's past. We shall be saved, that's future. Verse 10, having been reconciled, that's past. We shall be saved, that's future. We are sandwiched in love here. Past love, future promised love, smushed in between love we are. That's point number two. God the Father himself has worked in the past decisively, will work in the future infallibly to rescue us from his wrath. Here's point number three. Both God's past work and his future work to rescue us from his wrath 
are done through His Son, Jesus Christ. Both the past work and the future work has been and will be done through His Son, Jesus Christ. God doesn't justify anybody and will not save anybody except through Jesus. Where do you see it? Verse 9. Much more than having now been justified, that's God's work, by His blood, that's Christ's work, shall we be saved from the wrath of God, that's God's work, through Him, that's Christ's work. You see it? Now let's do it in verse 10. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God, that's God's work, through the death of His Son, that's Christ's work, much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved, that's God's work, by His life, that's Christ's work. Oh, my. Oh, that in Christmas season, we as a church would meditate upon Jesus. Not just some vague notion of a deity out there. This text seems so bent on glorifying Jesus in the work of redemption. The Father doesn't do anything without doing it through Jesus to save us. Now, I want to linger on this for just a minute because the implications for worship and witness are enormous and very controversial. Think of it. If I'm not mistaken, verses 9 and 10 of Romans 5 reveal the heart of Paul under the inspiration of God, thus revealing God's heart concerning a massive passion for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is at stake here. The Father does all this work for us through Jesus Christ. So that Jesus says in the Gospels, for example in John 5, 23, He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Here's a paraphrase of that. If you do not worship Jesus, you do not worship God. That sentence will get you killed in some countries today. And in this city, it will get you scorned big time. Because there are tens of thousands of Jews and tens of thousands of Muslims, and none of them honor the Son. You see, when you really say the text for what it says, we're in trouble. See Kurt sitting up there, director of missions, Kurt. Do you realize what you're called to be here? Missions. Do we realize this is a mission-driven church? Do you realize how offensive missions is? What is missions? 
If worship is this, if you do not worship Jesus, you don't worship God. Call him Elohim, call him Adonai, call him Allah, call him God, call him Deus, call him God, call him what you will. If you don't worship Jesus, you don't worship God. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father. Or 1 John 2.23, he who has the Son has the Father. He who has not the Son has not the Father. Jesus said it right out to the Pharisees who knew the whole Old Testament by heart and went to the temple worshiping blip every day. They don't know him, he said. So what should we say today? In Guinea, what should we say to in the United Arab Emirates, Pakistan, Tunisia, Japan, North Korea, China, South Vietnam, Indonesia? What do we say? Oh, you know God. You all know God. You all getting to Him in various ways. Well, let's just close up shop at Bethlehem. If that's what we're going to say. What we're going to say is. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. Of whom I am chief. And I would like to share the best news in the world with you. Because there is no other escape from the wrath of God. Trust his son Jesus. Who died that you might live. And if you don't trust him. You perish. That made some people very angry here a few weeks ago. And it will make them more angry in the years to come. Because pluralism is going to get more and more the norm. Tolerance will become the law. And anybody who not only refuses to act in a tolerant way, but speak in a tolerant way, will be accused of hate-mongering, which leads to violence, which puts you in jail. So just decide. You can jump ship right now if you want to be a pluralist and say all religions are equal and we're all on our way to God through various saviors. Because when the pressure comes, you're going to jump ship if that's your mind. You may as well jump now and keep the church more pure. How many of you are spending your life doing something that counts? A lot of students in this room. You haven't made up your mind yet. Now I want to say to even those who have made up their mind, if your job is letting you down in terms of significance, change it! There are 10,000 jobs available that are significant. Now, I don't think everybody should be a missionary. I've made that plain. Okay? But if your job makes you feel useless day in and day out, change it. Come on. Take some risk with your life, for goodness sakes. You only have a few seconds left on this earth. And you students, you aren't stuck anywhere yet. Dream a dream that counts. 
Don't dream about the American dream. Don't dream about the house and the suburbs and the wife and the kids and the cars and the computers and the retirement and the vacations and all the accoutrements of refrigeration and electricity and heat and 911. Dream a real dream. Because hell is real and wrath is awful and Christ is glorious. And one soul saved, as C.S. Lewis said, is worth more than the preservation of every classic that's ever been written. Oh, let's get serious. Let's get real. Or just quit. And I know you want to be real. You want to be real. Last point. Number four. The past work of God in Christ increases the certainty of the future work of God to save us from his wrath. Now, this is the main point of the text. This is the main point. The main point of this text is in the words, much more, much more, much more. You've got to get this logic here. The Puritans used to be called, in their preaching, logic on fire. If there was ever a text that had to be gotten with logic, it's this one. And if there was ever a text that put a match to it, it's this one. The much more of these two verses is logic. And I want you to get it because the whole point of it is practical. Who cares about logic except for one thing, life, joy, Eternity, relationships. Logic serves love. If it doesn't, damn it. How does he do it? Look at this. Verse 9. Much more than, much more than having been justified by his blood. Shall we be saved from wrath through him? Now, let's get the much more in the right place here so you feel it. Having been justified through his blood. Now, that carries a megaton of three chapters, four chapters for the Apostle Paul, right? And I I hope it does for you. Having been justified by blood of the living Son of God. Now, much more than... Feel the force of it coming into your heart, increasing hope, increasing confidence, increasing assurance, much more than shall you be saved from wrath, no fear, no condemnation, through to glory. This is the gospel. We are sandwiched in love, and the past love doesn't just somehow compare illogically to the future love. The past love is the Super booster of the future love. Do you see it in the much more? Now, most of the children were in the first hour, and I spoke to them at this point. You won't mind, will you, if I use my children's illustration? Okay, kids. I want you to get this, kids. I want you to get this because... Maybe a lot of things that I've said have gone over your head. Don't let this one go over your head because I want you to feel confident. I want you to feel hopeful. I want you to feel happy. I want you to be sure that God is going to save you from hell. Kids get scared of hell. Adults, they, I, I watch it on some of your faces. I talk about wrath and some of you roll your eyes. 
Oh, good grief. Does he believe that? Children don't do that. They're terrified. So I want the children who are wise to hear the rescue and the certainty that you don't have to go there. And God loves you so much, He's made a way. And He not only has loved you so much that He made a way, He's loved you so much that He's trying to figure out ways to help you love and understand the way and be confident in the way. That's what these verses are about. They're all about assurance. So here's my story. Suppose you, with your parents, move into a new neighborhood and you live in your new house the first night and you sleep in the bedroom in the second floor. And in the first night, while everybody's asleep, the house catches on fire. And the fire starts and everybody is asleep. Your neighbor is up late and he sees the fire. He smells the smoke. He quick calls 911. He runs next door. He pounds on the door. He breaks the window. He crawls inside. He screams and hollers. He gets your mom and dad up. They, they run outside coughing. They fall down and pass out on the ground, but they're okay. And then he hears you in the bedroom screaming because there's big fire in the hall and you can't get out and you don't know how to work these windows in the new house. And he runs upstairs and he grabs from another bedroom a big blanket. He runs into the bathtub and he soaks it with water. He puts it over. He runs through the fire in the hall. He throws it over you, bundles you all up in a wet blanket. And he runs through the fire in the hall and drops you outside. And he's burned all over his arms here and back over his head. His face is burned. But he's okay. And in the next months, you get to be good friends with this man. He's in the hospital for a few weeks. Now he's out. They're going to fix him up. He's going to be all right. And he saved you, and he saved your mom and dad. And you become friends with him. You talk to him every day. And one day, let's call him Mr. Peterson. One day you say in the morning, as you see him going to work, Mr. Peterson, would you come over to my house after work today and show me a new trick with my new yo-yo? I know you can do yo-yo real well. And I can hardly do it. Would you come over and show me a new trick with my yo-yo? And he says, Johnny, I'll be there. And about mid-afternoon, your dad is working at home that day and you say to him, Daddy, I'm not sure Mr. Peterson's going to come over this afternoon. I'm starting to worry he might forget or, you know, maybe he doesn't really care about a little kid like me. And he'll do something more important. And your daddy says, Johnny, if Mr. Peterson walked through fire to save you and was burned all over his arms when he didn't even know you, how much more will he come this afternoon? That's the logic of verse 9. And the logic of verse 10. You see, there are two things at work here. There are two things at work. One is giving your son, like God did, is the hardest thing. And saving through his life is an easy thing. And if he did the hardest thing to give up his son, if he didn't spare his own son, then... How much more will he do the easy thing? If you go through fire to save a kid, you'll show a kid how to do a yo-yo trick. That's the one thing. Here's the other thing at stake. 
these folks had just moved into the neighborhood and he didn't know them. They weren't friends. He did this for strangers. And now it's been three months and he's Johnny's friend. So not only did he do the hard thing and we'll do the easy thing, he did it for a stranger. How much more will he do it for a friend? That's verse 10. Having been reconciled to him, much more shall we be saved by his life. Let me sum it up like this. If God loved you, sacrificed for you, gave his only son to suffer exquisitely for you, that you might escape judgment when you were his enemy. See that at the beginning of verse 10? When you were his enemy, then how much more will he do the easy thing for his friend? That's logic, folks. Fiery, hope-filled, assurance-giving logic. At least that's what Paul wants it to be. That's what God wants it to be this morning as you walk out of this room. The whole passion of this text as it comes from the heart of God is know that I am at work to make you a hope-filled people this Christmas. Know that what I have done, what I'm doing, what I will do, I mean to make you much more confident than you are, much more assured than you are, much more hope-filled than you are, and therefore, much more bold and loving and risk-taking and mission-minded and willing to take flack than you are. And so, please, please hear this logic. Having been justified... By his blood, much more, let your heart feel it, drink it now, much more, are you going to be saved? Nobody has to walk out of this room as a believer fearing that they're going to come into condemnation at the judgment day. You're going to go right through with a yo-yo in your hand. In verse 10, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, feel the weight of every word, by the death of his son, much more than having been made a friend of God, he will save his friends when he doesn't have to kill his son to do it. But only look at his life. Oh, let your heart take courage this morning. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, I thank you for the gospel of Jesus. I thank you for Romans. I thank you for Paul's heart and mind. I thank you for your own love that saves me from your own wrath. And I thank you for this people who care about these great things and are bent on knowing and living them out for your glory. Lord, draw near to us now and 
Go with us through this Advent season, making us more confident, more assured, more hope-filled, more loving, more risk-taking, more mission-minded, more evangelistic than we've ever been before, I pray. Would you stand with me? And now in great assurance and in great confidence and in great unwavering hope, go in peace with God. Amen. You're dismissed.